guys can be seated. As you're sitting down, I'd like for you to think about your favorite Christmas movie. Okay, not like just this week, but like of all time, what is your favorite Christmas movie? I'm going to give you about six seconds to nail that down. I apologize if you're a real thinker, but six seconds. Now you have four. Your favorite Christmas movie. Three, two, one. Okay, you have somebody near you, I hope. I want you to turn to that person and share your favorite Christmas movie with them. Go. And then listen to theirs. Okay. All right. Don't have a party out there. Okay. What, uh, what were some of the movies? Go ahead and yell them out. Home Alone. That's a good one. Any others? It's a Wonderful Life. Miracle on 34th Street. Good. Any others? Christmas in Connecticut. I've never heard of it. Okay. She wins a gift right there. Any others? Christmas Story. You'll shoot your eye out. I love that one. It's on 24 hours a day, like right TNT or TBS or something, like the whole Christmas day. Any others? What was it? Elf. I like that one myself. Well, if, if you think about Christmas, and I don't know, I didn't hear this, but one of like my favorite in kind of a weird and twisted way is Grinch, like the Grinch, like the Jim Carrey version. Um, and, and here's why. There's something redemptive about the story of the Grinch, because there's a little part of me that like he steals all the presence of this group of people. And you're just thinking, how could he do that at Christmas? Because there's kind of another part of you that like, that is, that's amazing. Like, that's a whole different story of Christmas. Like, the whole group of people get their gifts stolen and, like, their hope is dashed and kind of gets to the core of what's Christmas all about. And then at the end of the story, and the same as in the book, there's this part of him where he begins to, to experience what Christmas is about and his, his dead heart begins to beat. And to me, that's like this great, great picture of story, like that. This guy who hated Christmas, he hated all about Christmas, he hated kids, he hated gifts, he hated all that. He was a mean one, that Mr. Grinch. But his, at the end, his, his heart began to beat and he began to kind of warm to people. He began to warm to kind of what the season was all about in their view. And if you look on the front cover of your program this morning, that's our version, if you will, of kind of Mr. Grinch. It's somebody who really, if you look at them kind of look like they have a darkness to them. They look like they've been through a lot in life. They've experienced a lot of pain. They probably have a lot of things that are weighing on them. But then you see this little light or this gift that they're looking at, this treasure. And they're actually clothed in a robe like they're, they're of some importance, that they actually have a quality about them that doesn't match kind of what they look like. And there's kind of this, this message here that we're explaining throughout this series called grace. And the picture of the person on the front program is really a picture of grace. There's somebody who, despite all the things that you see in their life, the image of what that is, there's a hope that they have. And in this series, we've been talking about the hope that is found in grace. And even for Mr. Grinch, there's a part of him that he experienced grace at the end of the story. The people were elated that he was turning, that he actually had 
a heart. When you find out Mr. Grinch has a heart, they were very excited. Like, great, he has a heart. He's not going to do this again, hopefully next Christmas. But the same is true, actually, in life as well. There's this part where at Christmas time, uh, we hope for a certain you know, part of our life to kind of turn around and we have different experiences all year. And at Christmas time, we hope that things will finally come together in our relationships. We hope they come together at work. There's this kind of season. It's the end of the year. It's Christmas. We hope everything goes well. And the movies that you've mentioned a lot of times have the theme in there. There's different conflict that's happened. And this is true in most movies. There's conflict. There's all sorts of turmoil. And by the end of the story, hopefully for it to be a good Christmas story, uh, there's some redemption. There's something that's happened that, that brings hope to us. And that's what makes a good story. That's what makes a good movie. Writers know this, and that's kind of built into our view of things. And we're, it resonates with us. And what you find actually in Scripture is we have similar stories as well. Now, not all the stories in the Bible turn out exactly like we would think a Christmas movie to turn out. Some are painful, some are hopeful. But in the midst of all the stories that you read about in Scripture, there's this element of grace that is at work. And you find that grace is one of the largest components that God has weaved into history. Not just ancient history that we read of people 2,000 years ago, but here today, in my life, in your life. He wants us to experience grace. He wants us to experience a hope that is, is more important and that outlasts any other thing that we may put our hope in. And so today we're going to talk about a character in the scripture called David. And you may have heard of David. This is the same guy that took out the giant Goliath. And if you're not sure of that story, it's a great story. I won't go into it. But anyways, he's a shepherd boy, had no military training, but he stood up against a group of men that were trying to take out his people. And he killed the giant with some stones and a slingshot. So every guy in here, David is kind of our hero. And throughout the scripture, you, you, you see a description of David as a man after God's own heart. And today we're going to kind of look at some lessons from David, who was a shepherd boy who became a king. And in the midst of some of the things that were going well, he decided to actually rebel and, and make some really unwise decisions. And as you may be thinking, like, what happened to the Christmas hope? All of a sudden, it's going to go downhill. Actually, there, there's some grace that we can find that happens in this story, and that's why we're going to share it. And so I wanted to just share briefly some lessons uh, from King David in his life and kind of what God did with him and then how that provides hope for us. And so it goes back to really a promise that God gave David himself. Really, this promise was to provide security and some boundaries for his life. And you find it in 2 Samuel in the Old Testament. And this is God talking to David, kind of explaining how he wants to interact with him. And he says this, I took you from the pasture. Again, he was a shepherd boy. From following the sheep that you should be prince over my people Israel. So already there you see this like redemptive story. You are a shepherd boy leading sheep. I will make you a prince leading people. And I've been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. So there's this description of you've had success because I have been with you. You've had success because I'm watching over you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And what you find is we talk about this picture of grace. One of the things that really is important to us that's kind of connected to grace is that we all desire 
a good name. Most of us desire that. We, at the end of our life, hope to look back and can look and see, you know what? We have a good name. We have a good reputation. Our life counted for something. All of us want to look back and know that we made the most out of the breath and the life that we were given. So good names is what most of us uh, desire. And as you dig into the different stories of our time, popular stories, even the experience of our life, something within us where a good name comes and is restored, that, that brings a lot of hope for us. But the thing what you find in Scripture, and specifically to the person of David, is you have this promise from God about his name and about his, his life, what his story would be. And then you see human will and choice. And many times in life we have a picture of what we think our life should be. We may even have a picture of what we think God will do for us. And then we make decisions along the way and we think, I have destroyed the story. I've destroyed my life. I've gone off this chapter that was being written and now I'm in a totally different book. The story doesn't match. And there's just so much frustration. There's so much fear. There's so much doubt. And you find the same is true for David. He made a choice which actually kind of changed in his mind the direction of his life. A good name is what he desired. And he made some choices which was going to ensure that he wouldn't have a good name. So I'm going to kind of explain the story and then talk about what God did in the midst of that. So it really starts with a sin. And anytime you look at a good name and it becoming a bad name, it usually does begin with sin. And sin is really missing the mark. It's making a choice that doesn't line up with God's view of things. That's what sin is. You miss the mark. Here is the target and you're over here. And we can all relate to David because we have all sinned. But there's some things that happen that's very interesting. And this is kind of the epitome of the human condition. And so I'm going to dig into that. Second Samuel chapter 11. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him. So it's just telling you in the Old Testament, it's springtime. There's going to be a fight. And all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. So all his... The leaders are fighting. All the men are fighting. But David, the ruler of the whole land, is not fighting. He's at home. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Iliam, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her and she came to him and he lay with her. So here's this story unfolding. All the men are gone. All the leaders are gone. They're fighting a battle. David sees this woman that he wants. And he decides no one's around. No one's going to know. I'm going to just make this choice to please myself. Go get the woman and she will be mine. The problem is the woman is married. In fact, her husband is fighting. And the story turns, just like the story kind of last week, Bathsheba gets pregnant. So all of a sudden David has a problem. Uh-oh. This woman is pregnant. Her husband is gone. What do I do? So he had kind of a bunch of options he's, he's thinking about. And he thought, you know what? What if, what if I bring him home and he'll just be with his wife and then all will be, all will be fine? But he didn't want to come home. He wanted to keep fighting. So here's this noble man that's fighting for Israel. David, the leader that he is fighting for, has just betrayed him. And he wants to bring him home so everything will kind of look like it's okay. 
And he, he doesn't want to go. He doesn't want to stop fighting. So he's like, okay, if he won't come home from the fight, I'll bring him home. I'll get him drunk. And then he won't know what's happened. Everything will be okay. That doesn't work either. He's faced a noble man. David cannot kind of persuade him to come home. He won't, he won't do it. And so David decides, okay, I've screwed up. The only way to get to the bottom of this is I'm going to actually have to take him out. I'm going to have to kill him. So here's this choice on a roof that led to a sin that leads to just the spiral of choices and more sin and more destruction. And this is what happens in verse 14. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter, he said, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting. And then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. Could you imagine writing that letter? You're the leader of the land and you're explaining to the commander to let your soldier who is fighting for your freedom to just be left out in the dark. Make sure he gets to the hardest part, the focal point of the whole battle, and then step back and let him fight alone. That's like unimaginable. How could a leader of the country do that? How could that happen? And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. So you put him in a place where he knew these guys are going to take him out. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. So here you see David's plot didn't just mess with Uriah. There was also people that were fighting alongside him. They didn't know this plan. They didn't know that they were being strung out to fight alone, and they were killed as well. And David thinks, okay, the problem, the problem is solved. And so Bathsheba now is without a husband. He died in battle. She heard the news. She mourned. And David thinks, okay, well, now let, let me take matters into my own hand. You come live with me. You will become my wife. And so everything appeared like it was in the up and up. This woman's husband died in battle. David, in his mercy, married her. And so he thought. So you see this this person, this David, this king, this ruler who God had walked with, who had helped, who had experienced so much success and blessing, decided later in his life when he did this, he was actually in his 50s, decided all the history, all that God had done, he decided, you know what, I just want to take care of myself. I just want to please myself right now. I just want to do what I want to do. And people may get hurt, people may not get hurt, but I just, I really want to do what I want to do. So at that point, David wasn't thinking about God walking with him. He wasn't thinking about the good name that was promised to him. He was thinking about pleasing myself. This is really where the need for grace comes because at the core of all of us is that. The bottom line is we do want to please ourselves. You do and I do. We want what we want and we can stubbornly and selfishly pursue it at all costs. And so he had, he had come up with this plan, and the plan unfolded, and the plan unfolded. And he thought he was safe. But what you find is, this was David, a man after God's own heart. This was David, who God had said would make a great name. God was not going to let that go. God knew. He saw, just like he sees everything. Nothing can escape God. And so God raises up an aging prophet named Nathan. And Nathan comes to David and explains this story of a man 
hypothetically, that did every single thing that David did in this story. And he's explaining this story to David. Here's a man. He sent his, this woman's husband to die in battle. He slept with this woman. They cover it all up, and he's explaining the story. And, and David is getting sucked into this story. Like who, who could do such a thing? And it's just like in the movies when you see something happen, you want justice. Someone makes a choice, and it's, it's just a terrible choice, terrible decision. They mess with people. They hurt people. And in the movie, you know, you want them to take them out. This is what's happened to David. He's picturing this scene happening from this prophet. He's like, how could such a thing happen? And he responds like this, Second Samuel chapter 12, verse 5. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. Wait, who is the man here? It's him. I just gave it away. That was like the worst reveal ever, just in case you didn't know. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. This is David. Whoever would do this deserves to die. This is atrocious. How could anyone do such a thing? Okay, isn't this a little ironic? David, who had done this, who had covered it up, made all these plans, was blinded by his sin. And that's what sin does. You take a step towards it. You take a further step in. You take a further step in. And the further you go into sin, the forest of sin and the brush of it, it begins so you can't see out anymore. You can't see clearly. That's what sin does. You can't see what's real. You can't see what's true. You are sucked in. That's what happens in the sinful condition. You can't see. So he's saying, this man deserves to die. He wants to see him pay. He wants justice. Then it goes on further. Nathan said to David, could you imagine just Nathan? He's this old wise prophet. And David says this man deserves to die. And Nathan's just thinking, this is about to get interesting. I wonder what's going to happen. And you know, Nathan, he just decides, I'm going to throw it out there. It wasn't no easing into it. He says this, you are the man. And he's like, well, he could kill me right now. But I'm going to say it. You are the man then he goes on further thus says the lord the god of israel i anointed you king over israel and i delivered you out of the hand of saul remember all i've done for you and i gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of israel and of judah i provided for you again and again when you were in need i came through and if this were too little i would add to you as much more So if this was enough, I'd provide even more for you. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? Why did you disobey me after all I had done? Why did you turn away from the way that was right to please yourself? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. So now the truth was out. Something which was covered became uncovered. Something that was hidden is now in the light. And there were some severe consequences that David had to face because of that choice. And you can read more about that in 2 Samuel. But what you find is despite the consequences and despite the things that were spiraling out of control, God was not done with David. And this is why this is called a grace story and not like a and it's done.
Good news is, I'm not praying now and saying, well, have a good week. Don't do what David did. The fact of the matter is, is there's a part in all of us when you hear stories like that, at least for me, I'm thinking, what was he thinking? And there's something in us when we experience this in life. We're not talking about the movies anymore, but actually in life, when people make choices like that, where there's something in us that we're just like, wow, I'm glad I'm not them. I'm glad I haven't done that. And that's a common thing that we all think. We tend to think, I'm better than most. We do. You turn on the news, you read the newspaper, you hear stories of what's happening in the world, and there's something in us that's, I'm better than most. I'm okay, I haven't done that. I'm okay, I I haven't plotted for someone to get killed. I'm okay, I'm better than most. What you find is as you walk with God a long time and you become mature, Mature Christians actually have a different view of things. And they think this, I'm among the worst. And this is where the power of grace is made clear. You only need grace if you realize that you are the worst. You're in need of redemption. You're in need of hope. If you think you're okay, you don't need grace. It's only by coming to terms with our condition, our sin, the choices we've made, that we actually see the full power of the grace of God. Fast forward to the New Testament. You see another picture of grace from the Apostle Paul. Paul was a church starter. He was a a Jewish religious leader who killed early Christians. He wanted to stop the movement. He thought, this has to be stopped. These people are crazy. And so he actually plotted to kill Christians. Well, God had a different idea for his life. God saved him. said, you know, you are going to follow me and you're going to actually help me spread the church throughout the whole earth. And he did. He started churches and he began the movement of Christianity way back when. And Paul is probably one of the most accomplished people in the scriptures. From the amounts of churches he started, from the amounts of leaders he trained, from the amounts of uh, just advice he gave, two-thirds of the New Testament was written by this man. But he has an interesting statement which echoes the need that all of us has. In 1 Timothy 1.15, he gives us a trustworthy saying. He says, here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Basically, here's something that may not make sense to you, but you really need to listen. You really need to hear it. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. If the Apostle Paul said that, he had a view of himself which we can learn from. And that is, there's not really what we do, it's not really what we don't do, it's not really our past or what we think our future will be. None of those things account to the grace God wants to give us. All that matters is that we actually do life God's way on his terms. And what Paul realized was all the things I've accomplished flow from a man broken and in need of grace. And this is why Jesus came to save sinners of whom I am the worst. 
is I want to encourage you today as you're thinking through your own life and as you hear these stories, there's a part in you that you kind of do a gut check of where you're at. Your view of yourself, your view of things, the view of where you are. The best place you can be is to recognize you're in need of help. You're in need of a power that's beyond yourself. Now, we all have different views of God and how he interacts with us or if there is a God and if he actually does interact at all. But we ought to come to grips with this idea of where do we go when we need help beyond ourselves? And these grace stories come to the point that no matter the leader, no matter the strategy, no matter the power, no matter the success, if you look at David, it didn't matter all these things. He still came to the point where he was completely and utterly alone and in need of grace. He was the leader of a whole nation and yet made decision to destroy his name. And so in the midst of this terrible story, in the midst of the choice, you actually take a step back and you see grace is needed for those who are broken. And we all are to a different degree. We're all in need of the grace of God. I want to kind of explain the next chapter in David's life and kind of what he does and how he experiences God, knowing his condition, knowing the choices he's made, knowing the brokenness of the situation, the lives that he's affected, the lives that he's lost. About a year later, in Psalm 51, we see a confession of David. In this confession, you find so much about the God who wants to interact with you. And you find so much about the God who wants to interact with me and the whole entire world. And so if you've never read Psalm 51, I encourage you to read this on your own. I'm going to be looking at it in chunks. But this psalm is a perfect picture of what humans need to do in light of the grace of God. In light of God himself, how should we respond? And so this is a psalm of David. The description you'll see there on the screen when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. So this actually was a year later. Some scholars believe he, he wrote this a year later after all this had happened. After Nathan had basically said, you are this man for a year. He was chewing on this. He was just thinking this through. He was just weighed down by all this that had happened and all the consequences that had come and all the brokenness that he experienced. And he uttered these words to God. Follow along. It's it's actually this beautiful picture of the grace that God extends to us. And so here's part of his confession. He refused to excuse his sin. And what we can learn from that is I must refuse to excuse my sin. And he starts with this in verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. You actually see three different descriptions of missing the mark. The first is transgressions. He's basically saying, blot out my rebellion. Act like it didn't happen, God. I rebelled against you. I turned from going your way. Blot it out. Forgive me for that. 
And then he says, wash me from my iniquity. The iniquity there, it's, it's actually, it, it denotes like a perversion, a mischief. Like I did something that just was awful before you, God. It was shameful. It was despicable. But can you wash me from that? Can you cleanse me from that decision? Can you cleanse me from that attitude? Can you cleanse me from that choice? And then he says, and cleanse me from my sin. And that's really, you're just varying from what is right. Here's right, and here's God's way. And you decide you want to go that way. So just, he, he's true with what he did. Not, sorry God, I, I, I kind of screwed up. No, he, he just went to the, the truth and confessed before God, I, I've sinned against you, I've rebelled against you, I was mischievous before you. And I just wanted to please myself. Forgive me for that. And then you see what he, he's asking God to do. Blot it out, wash it away, and cleanse me. And this is what David is actually crying out to God from experience. This is what God does. He's done it with every person that's turned to him and walked with him. No matter the choices that you've made, there's this relationship that God wants to have with each of us where despite what we have done, His grace washes, cleanses, and purifies us. There's nothing that you can do that keeps the stain on you. What are those little um, toys, you know, where you make a little... This is not really a good description Etch-a-sketch. Wow, that's like Pictionary. You win right there. That's awesome. Etch-a-sketch. You know, etch-a-sketch is kind of like, it's kind of like this picture, right? You, you do the etch-a-sketch, you have this great picture, and no matter how the design, if you shake it, it's gone. But over time, the etch-a-sketch, like, it doesn't look as good anymore. Like, there's still kind of the, the old sketches that exist, and you kind of shake it, and you shake it, and it, it doesn't work anymore. And then you throw it away, and you get a new one, and then a year later, the same thing, you throw it away. And it's just etch-a-sketches. It kind of deletes it, but it's still there. That's kind of sometimes our view is we want cleansing and we want to be purified, but we're like the, the, the kid with the etch-a-sketch that's trying to do it on our own terms. Like if I can just be good enough, and this is kind of leads to the next point of what, what David does. He refuses to excuse his sin. And he asks God to intervene. And this goes on in verse 3. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Like I, I know what I've done. I'm not ignoring the fact. In fact, it's just something that I'm dealing with every day. I know what I've done. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. So God, I have screwed up. I'm not going to try to sugarcoat it. I'm not going to try to act like it didn't happen. I see my sin and you have the full right to take me out because of what I've done. But the story's not finished. He then asked God to restore him. So you think the leader of the land who'd been dealing with this about a year, trying to figure out where he stands, what he should do. He had all the kingdom at his disposal. He had all the things that he could have made himself feel better. The counselors, the music, the health spa, all the different things, all sorts of things to help him. He realized that there, there's nothing I can do to restore me. This stuff doesn't last. And he gets to this point where he says, create in me a clean heart, O oh God, 
and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, God, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. So you see this brokenness, this aloneness, this time where he's just not sure if anyone is there. And uphold me with a willing spirit. And he goes on. Then I will teach transgressors your ways. And sinners will return to you. He's basically saying that God. If you forgive me. And you restore my heart. And you allow me to kind of be upright again. Not down. Trodden with the decisions that I made. People will actually realize that if you've had grace on me. There is hope for them. You know, in the kingdom, everyone's talking about the king. You always do that in a society. The leaders, what the choices they make, that's tabloid magazines. So, you know, everyone knew what David had done. Everyone knew all that had happened. And back then, they don't go to the stand and pay for it. But, you know, they're like, hey, what's going on with David? This is getting crazy in the kingdom, you know. And they're talking, and David just, his reputation is it's messed up. People knew. And he's saying, God, if you extend grace to me, imagine the people that return to you. Because if you have mercy on me, all I've done, there is hope. And it's the same true for us. We have hope in this story, not because we're better than David, but it shows the grace of God cannot be outdone by anything that we do. There's no iniquity or sin or rebellion that can separate us from the grace of God. That is the hope. That we have. But we have our etch-a-sketch. We may want to try harder. We want to take it on ourselves. Like, okay, if I just beat myself up enough. If I just make myself pay every morning because of what I did. Maybe I can do it long enough and I'll no longer feel the pain of it. I'll just be bruised and battered and I'll be desensitized. But it's not how it works. There's nothing you can do. To pay for it. There's nothing you can do to beat yourself up for it long enough. And this is what David's saying. He's saying, you have to restore me. My experience, as I've been walking with God, there's a truth that I've found again and again. And that's lasting change is not the result of my own effort. Uh, It's the grace of God that changes me. I can't try harder. If it's on me, I'm in trouble because I continue to mess. So I can't try harder and I can't make my pay myself, make myself pay for for time and time again because I've still sinned, I've still made the decision. So I can't try harder, I can't beat myself up to undo what was done. I need the grace of God and this is where Jesus is our hope. He takes our sin. He takes our rebellion. And when he died on the cross, he took it. For us. So we realize there's nothing we can do. It's only the grace of God and his forgiveness that restores me. And so I want to encourage you. If you've been in roundabout ways trying to earn God's favor or trying to beat yourself up, Stop it. That's not overly wise. But stop it. It doesn't work. 
You're just spinning your wheels in the mud. It doesn't let you gain traction in life. Stop it. And turn to God. Admit your sin. And ask Him to restore you. You may have never done that in your entire life. Do that today. You may have done it in the past and you've walked with God, but over time you've just realized you've kind of just going your own way. And the power is gone because you keep trying to do it by your own effort. Stop it. Choose today to go back to the God who saves you, whose power overcomes any choice or sin you have made. Psalm 32 is a prequel to Psalm 51. This is another nugget of wisdom. I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Christmas time, stressful. Shopping, lists, parties. You've ever realized, like, sometimes it's like the, the, the giving the gifts, the parties, all these things that when you're around people, you just get to the point where you're like, dude, done with people yet you're tired you're worn out you just you're kind of like pooped out by the holidays at least that's how i feel sometimes you go from one thing to the next to the next and you're like christmas i don't want to be around anybody but in the midst of all the busyness of christmas this is the center of it all because it's only when we recognize that we have sinned against the god And we need to be restored. That's where the real hope is. That's why Jesus is so important. Because if we can't do it, and we can't earn it, then we need someone outside of ourselves. And it goes back to the person of Jesus Christ. He's the power, and He is the hope. So now is the time, the best time, to actually deal with what really matters. And that's you and God interacting with you. In the last part of Psalm 51, and I'll wrap up the message, he gives us some more perspective. So we need to acknowledge our sin. We need to ask God to restore us. And then offer sacrifices that please God. Another alternate title to this would be Stop Playing Games with God. Stop Playing Games. This is what he says. This is David talking. He says, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I will give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. And this time, to pay for the wrong you've done, you know, you, you gave like a burnt offering, like a pure animal. They kill the animal. It pays for your sin. And David, the powerful man in the whole kingdom, is saying, If you want sacrifices, I've got whole herds that I will bring in and burn up for you. We'll just take care of this right now. But he says, that's not what you desire. That's not what you delight in. That's not what you ask of me. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. This is, it. And this is what he says. He says, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. Now, if you're thinking this is kind of the most depressing thing you've ever heard, it's actually not like, you know, when you become a Christian, you decide to follow him. It's the worst thing that you'll ever do because you just walk around broken and contrite and like, I'm a Christian, it's awful, but I'm doing it for Jesus. 
That may be some of your view. It's not that at all. What it's saying is actually that we shouldn't walk around moping. We shouldn't walk around as completely the most depressed people on the earth because that doesn't actually help people want to turn to God. What it's saying is the broken spirit is, I realize that my heart is cold towards you. I realize that I want to do my own thing. There's a recognition before God that you realize God, I want my own way, and you're saying I shouldn't have my own way. And what God desires is you, you give, you surrender. You ask him to soften the Grinch heart that we all have. And we all do. And every day, our heart can get hard again. And in the day, multiple times. And here's a pattern that if you learn again and again, you will experience the power of God. And that's when when I mess up, I confess it. I don't try to play games. I ask God to restore me. I make it right. And I ask him to continue soften my heart towards him. Quick story. This past week or last week. Uh, I was in the office and someone asked me something and I, I heard them talking and I didn't want to have the conversation with the person and they were asking me something. I just, I looked at them and I said, not now. I stormed out of the room. I sat on my desk and I thought, wow, that was really harsh. But I didn't want to talk about it. You get to the point where someone wants to have a conversation you're like, not now. Oftentimes you may think that, but I actually thought it and said it. You ever done that before? It comes out and you're like, whoops, (laughs) trap door open, shut that thing. And I said it and I sat down at my desk and I was bothered by it because I knew it just, it wasn't right. It was harsh. And I just kind of stepped on the person. Not now. See ya. And so God was kind of working in my heart like that was wrong. Yeah, God, but like really not now. Like I don't want to talk about it now. And I'm kind of wrestling with God and he's saying that was harsh. Yeah, but you yeah, <laughs> but I don't want to talk about it now, and I, I don't want to admit that I did wrong. I'm just kind of just in this like little battle with God, talking to him, not out loud, because that would freak out the person in my office. But all right, God. So I, I went to the person. I said, you know what? It was, it was wrong of me to, to say that. And there were other people in the office, so I had to ask for their forgiveness. You know, I said this to this person, and it was really harsh. And so I asked for forgiveness, and I, before that, confessed before God and I asked for his forgiveness and I got back to my office and I still felt kind of bad and I felt like man I can't believe I did that and so I was kind of beating myself up but I realized like I had confessed it to God I confessed it to the person I'd asked for forgiveness and I just asked God just God help me help me to move on there's nothing I can do and God began to restore me the relationship was restored the person didn't think that I was out to just step on them anymore and that was God at work. And that's a little thing. It's being harsh. We can do that with our kids. We can do it with car coworkers. We could do it with the person at the grocery store. But that's the pattern of what God is talking about here. There's this element that in the midst of the things that we do, that the choices that we make that don't please him, as we admit it and we confess it to him and make it right and see that trickle down, this is where good relationships flow. This is where the light in the midst of the darkness shines and this is grace recognizing that we mess up 
making it right before God, making it right before people, and seeing God at work. And so I encourage you, no matter where you are, and the busyness and all the things that you have in your head, take a look at Psalm 51 and just think, what, what do I need to do as I focus on my relationship with God? Is there just a piece that I'm missing? Is there just something in my heart that's cold towards God? Is there something that's hard in there that he needs to soften and, and ask him to do that? And there's some next steps that you can take today related to that. I'm going to briefly go over those. You can memorize Psalm 51.10 just as a prayer to God. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Uh, you can take time to get your, your heart right before God. You just realize that you've kind of been going on your own for a while. Or you may realize that you've actually never turned to follow him. And you want to learn about what that means. You can check that box, what it means, info about making Jesus the boss of my life. You can check that as well. Third thing is you can share God's grace with someone in your life. Someone that you run into in the street, someone that you interact with at work. Just share God's grace. As God is gracious with you and as God is gracious with me, how can I extend it? And then the last thing which J.R. mentioned is giving towards the Christmas offering. And this Christmas offering we, we do at Christmas time every year. And it's just a great opportunity to give and to extend yourself to ways that actually extend into the world and ultimately for the kingdom. And so I just want to ask you to consider giving to that. I know it's tight this time of year as you, you have a lot of things that you're giving to. But I just want to ask you to pray. Is, is there something that you can give that could really help the lives of the people that that this will impact. And so, like JR mentioned, there's a few ways you can do that online with the giving envelope, and I encourage you to do that. We'll be doing that through Sunday, uh, January 5th. Let's pray together, and then we're going to sing some more songs back to God and receive our offering. Let's pray. God, we, we are just blown away by the grace that you give, not because we fully understand it, but really because of who we are. And I thank you for the testimony of David and the way that you did restore him and the way that you actually gave him a good name. And that that gives hope to all of us. We do want to make a difference and we do want to matter and we actually do want good reputations. And so God, I ask that in the midst of the things that we want, the desires of our heart, we will recognize that this flows from you. It's actually a gift from the living God who has made us. So God, help us to be gracious as we interact with others. Help us to stop playing games with you and to really want to do life your way. And so we ask for your mercy, God, just like David cried. Have mercy on us and renew the right spirit within us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.